Good morning, everyone. I was uh, prepared and looking forward to preaching a Sanctity of Life Sunday message, and then um, I found out um, there's something else afoot. So uh, us conservative evangelicals need to not get our wires crossed, but turns out that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Today is also Conversion Sunday, um, the, f- the first one ever. So I'll probably do a Sanctity of Life uh, message next Sunday. So uh, some, some really easy preaching these days, Romans chapter 9, <laughs> Conversion Sunday, Sanctity of Life. Well, it is easy because it's, it's just the Word of God. But uh, let me explain the, the background here. Um, first of all, there are thousands of past, uh, Christian pastors across the country who are taking a stand together for biblical sexual mor- morality. Uh, so I've, I've signed a statement uh, attesting to that. And uh, we've, we've all agreed uh, to preach on the subject of biblical uh, sexual morality Today And the reason for it uh, is that there's a bill in Canada that has just taken effect. It's called C4, and here it is in English and French, and uh, I'll give it to you if you'd like. You can, it's readily available on the internet, but it outlaws what the bill calls conversion therapy, and the preamble of the bill It says, first of all, that the belief that heterosexuality, uh, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender gender identities, and gender expression is a myth. And so... The bill calls what the Bible has to say in the area of sexual morality a myth. Then the bill defines conversion therapy as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. And so, by the way, according to that definition, what I'm going to do this morning is against that law. And this law has teeth. It goes on to spell out these penalties. Everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense 
and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. That's the law of the land now in Canada. And similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment uh, uh, for a term of not more than two years. A Canadian pastor, Andrew DeBartolo, from Encounter Church in Kingston, Ontario, wrote, this means as of January 8th, 2022, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. So it is. So that's the occasion of Conversion Sunday. And lest you assume that we're safe because we live in America and not Canada, did you know that in 2012, California passed Senate Bill 1172 banning gay conversion. And that's alongside New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. And last, well, the election year in 2020, uh, the Republicans have their convention, the Democrats have their convention, and they both pass party platforms. Well, in 2020, the Democratic Party and their platform declared that they would ban harmful conversion therapy practices. So that's black and white. That's just out there for people to read and to know where they stand. So uh, in terms of the letter of the law, I think I'm already breaking the law in California. I think the only thing that separates us from being uh, prosecuted in America compared to, say, Canada is uh, we have a strong, and I'll, I'll say conservative, so conservative ev evangelical movement that has some political teeth. In Canada, when uh, C4 passed, there wasn't a single dissent among conservative lawmakers in Canada. I, I believe that in most states in America, this law, a law like this would not pass, and then we have a Supreme Court. And as a country, we have a strong tradition of the First Amendment. But that's the only thing that separates uh, us from, from Canada, frankly. So one more word of introduction. Uh, I know that um, evangelicals, uh, in some instances, we have a well-earned reputation Maybe in some instances, it's just an, we're an easy target. But uh, we do have this reputation of being gay bashers. And that is not my perspective. That's not how I want to come across. Uh, I know and love several gay people. And I want to present this material from the heart of a friend who went, if that's you, by the way, if... Uh, your um, lifestyle is convicted from the word of God that we're going to see, then I want you to um, receive this from a friend who wants to see you saved and happy, not from someone who hates you or looks down on you. I, I give you my word. That's not 
my heart. I can relate with the Apostle Paul. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so what I'm about to say in our study comes from someone who has been rescued by God's grace from a sinful lifestyle, maybe not a homosexual lifestyle, but a sinful lifestyle. I've been rescued from that. And I've been rescued from a Christless eternity. And I want to see other fellow sinners rescued by the same grace of God. So that's the perspective that this is coming from. But it is also coming from the perspective that this is the word of God. It's God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Make no mistake about that. So here we go. The way we're going to do this is um, I'm going to organize our our Bible study just by considering six different objections to the typical evangelical biblical view. So here's the first one, the first objection. The Bible only whispers about homosexuality. Have you, have you heard of that? This was a statement from uh, Jen Wilkin who said, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. And then that sentiment uh, was quoted by J.D. Greer in a sermon and then sadly plagiarized by uh, Ed Litton, who's now the current uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention in a sermon in January 19, uh, 2019. So there's some truth to that, for sure, that the Bible con con uh, condemns materialism and religious pride as well as all other sins, all other transgressions of God's holy law. Um, but referring to the sin, uh, the form of sexual immorality known as homosexuality as a whisper in the Bible is just not accurate. And so I would just remind you, God rained down fire and brimstone, burning sulfur on the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in uh, Genesis chapter 19. And that that's included in what Paul calls all scripture that's God-breathed and is profitable, Genesis 19. And the sin for which Sodom was famous was the homosexuality of men. Sodom is where we get the term sodomy and sodomites, named after this widespread sin of the town. Las Vegas is called Sin City, for different sins, well, Sodom is called sin city for sodomy. And in Genesis chapter 18, we're told that the outcry against 
Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin grievous. That's what God said. And then in Genesis 19 and verse 23, then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities. And then later on, this particular sin was codified in the law of Moses. So in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, uh, it's, there's something similar in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 10 through 16. There, God said through Moses, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And a lot of folks try to say, well, <clears throat> there were other things that were an abomination to the Lord that uh, clearly are not sinful, so homosexuality must be included with, with those. They were uh, an abomination under the Old Testament, but not under the New. But if you look with me in Romans chapter 1, in Romans cha uh, chapter 1, Paul doesn't use the word homosexual or homosexuality here, but he clearly describes the practice and he does in a way that clearly reflects the holiness code from Genesis, uh, Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. Notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter uh, 1, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, that is that God, uh, people, sinful people, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's exactly what Leviticus chapters 18 and 20 describe. That's what Genesis chapters 18 and 19 describe in terms of uh, the, the cry against Sodom and Gomorrah, their sin. That's why God destroyed them. And so here we have a New Testament writer, the apostle of grace, Paul, condemning this particular transgression in those terms. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to come back actually to both of these passages, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, we're going to come back to that in a minute, a few minutes, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So a couple of things... Um, it's absolutely true that homosexuality is not the only sin. 
And it's not the worst sin, and it's certainly not the unforgivable sin, but it is a sin. And it seems to be a sin that particularly gripped the male population of Corinth. And that's why Paul refers to it, touches on it in uh, four different ways there. Sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuality, etc. And according to Paul in Romans 1, it's against nature itself. And I'll just leave that to your imagination to figure out why it's against nature according to the apostle. Furthermore, we won't look there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, uh, Paul uses the same word that he coined in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to say that homosexuality is contrary to God's law and contrary to sound doctrine. So all, all that to say that this is hardly a whisper. It's hardly a whisper. I repeat, absolutely God condemns materialism and spiritual pride and other sins. I repeat that homosexuality isn't the only sexual sin. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, all sexual activity that is outside of the bounds of the marriage bed is condemned as adultery and or fornication, pornea. And so that includes looking at pornography. That's also a form of sexual immorality. So in setting the record straight here, we don't want to make uh, it sound as if it's the whole Bible against homosexuality and homosexuals and, and that's it. That, that's not true. But the Bible does condemn all types, all manifestations of sin, and it invites all kinds of sinners to repent and to come to faith in Jesus Christ for redemption. And we'll talk more about that. So again, this is hardly a whisper. So number two, Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality. Remember, this is an objection that we're considering. Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality. Well, that's true. That's true, technically. Jesus never used the word that is translated homosexuality. He doesn't describe it so graphically, frankly, the way that does in Romans chapter 1. But that's no argument against the immorality of, of homosexuality. Christians don't ignore the rest of the Bible and then only consider the words of Jesus as our code of morality. And neither did Jesus. Jesus said in, Matt, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse uh, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of, of heaven. If we're going to limit our uh, morality code to just what Jesus explicitly mentions, then we wouldn't think that pedophilia or bestiality or rape or racism or plagiarism or a whole bunch of other sins are wrong. But the whole counsel of God clearly condemns these and other acts as sinful. And furthermore, Jesus certainly did teach on sexual morality in Matthew chapter 19. The specific issue was the issue of divorce. But in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and following, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So there you go. Jesus is binary in his worldview, in his sexual ethic. Male, female. And said, verse 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he'll fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. So there you go again. The uh, sexual union between a husband and a wife is part of the overall union that ultimately is a reflection of the union between Christ and his church. But notice that in terms of this one flesh union, which intimacy expresses, it's husband, wife, man, female, two. The two shall become one flesh. So in verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I, I submit to you that based on what Jesus said concerning the authority of the Old Testament morality code, and in terms of what he says here, there's already enough from the teaching of Jesus to condemn homosexuality, as well as other forms of sexual immorality like uh, adultery, looking at pornography, etc., etc., etc. So Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality, true, but he does, his teaching does condemn it. Three, the Greek word for homosexual in the New Testament doesn't mean what Christians say. Have you ever heard that? I've, I've heard that. The word for homosexual in the New Testament can or mean other things they say, doesn't mean what Christians say. So they say, it refers to uh, 
homosexual prostitution or, or rape. So back to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, let's do a little word study. Let's see. Let's search the scriptures to see if these things are so. So verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And here in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Paul uses for the first time in the New Testament the word arsenico koitai. And it turns out that Paul coined that word. But Paul clearly derives this word from the same passages that I've already referenced in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 20 and verse 13. He uh, lifts the um, language of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. He lifts two words that are used side by side in Leviticus 20 and verse 13. Uh, the word arsen, which means man, and the word coitus or koitai, which means bed. And so literally, in Leviticus 20 and verse 13, uh, God through Moses means men who bed with other men. Then Paul takes the same two words, remember from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and instead of using the word separately, he makes a new compound word. Men who bed with, with other men. So he puts together arson and koitos, or koite, into arsenokoite. That's the word translated homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. And Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor and a uh, scholar said, there, he wrote, there is no real other interpretation that makes the best sense of the evidence both in the Christian literature and especially in the Old Testament. A New Testament Greek scholar, Richard Hayes, wrote, this is the idiom from which the noun arsenokoite was coined. Therefore, Paul's use of the term presupposes and reaffirms the holiness code's condemnation of homosexual acts. And remember, we're not making this artificial connection between 1 Corinthians 6.9, the teaching of Paul, and the holiness code in Leviticus chapters 18 and 20, Paul himself did that by his language in Romans chapters, uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So I'll just read it again. But this is the same sort of description that we read in Leviticus. 
for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the, and, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing lawless acts with men. It's the same sort of uh, description that we see in the Old Testament. So, the Greek word doesn't mean what Christians say is false. It does. And by the way, uh, just to make sure, I, I checked the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament. I checked the Lao Nida Greek English lexicon of the New Testament, Strong's Greek lexicon. They all say the same thing. the practice of homosexuality is condemned by the language and grammar of the New Testament. All right, moving on. Number four. God made me this way. There's Lady Gaga who really popularized uh, this objection. I was, born, uh, I was born this way. And that was the impetus behind this huge study to find the gay gene. Lots of motivation to find the gay gene. So I looked in a super conservative source, the PBS website. And the headline from August 29th, 2019 said, there is no gay gene there is no straight gene. Sexuality is just complex, study confirms. And then here's an excerpt from that article. There is no single gene responsible for a person being gay or a lesbian. That's the first thing you need to know about the largest genetic investigation of sexuality ever, which was published Thursday and that turned out to be August 30th, 2019, in Science, the journal Science. The study of nearly a half million people closes the door on the debate around the existence of a so-called gay gene. In its stead, the report finds that human DNA cannot predict who is gay or heterosexual. Your DNA can predict your eye color, your sex, which is the same thing as gender. It can predict the kind of hair you have, whether you're going to have male pattern baldness or not, your skin color, every single thing about you biologically. Your DNA can predict because God has pre-programmed your biology through your DNA. But even this study, even PBS admits, DNA cannot predict who is gay or heterosexual. It goes on to say, sexuality cannot be pinned down by biology, psychology, or life experiences this study and others show because human sexual attraction is decided by all these factors. And I agree with that. 
I believe that there are personality uh, factors that probably are genetic that are acted upon and influenced by your environment and experiences and, and the like. But it's, there is no such thing as a gay gene. If you ever hear anyone say that, shut them down. It's a lie. It's false. But at the same time, take a step back and think about this question theologically. God made me this way, or I was born this way. There is an element of truth. Because we're all like David. And David says about himself in Psalm 51 and verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That means our sinful nature, which is our internal bias towards all manner of sin, including sexual immorality, it was all part of our conception. And God didn't make us that way, but he did knit us together in the wombs of our mothers in such a way that we did not avoid the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And it's also true that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on succeeding generations. Deuteronomy 5 and verse 9. And I've seen that, not just in my own family, but in others, perhaps a tendency towards alcoholism, anger, and yes, sexual immorality. There's a tendency. But we're not pre-programmed in a way that bypasses our responsibility. It still boils down to what we choose, what we feed, what we give ourselves over to. And we certainly can't blame God. In Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29, we're told, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And then James, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's what James says. And so the key that I take away from James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, is our own heart's desire. Sin wouldn't be a thing if it wasn't desirable. But what we're supposed to do in our battle against all kinds of sin is to do battle in our hearts against sinful desires. 
I have sinful desires. When we get saved, we are not completely delivered from the existence of sinful desires. We're redeemed from bondage to sin. We're redeemed from the controlling power of sin over lives, but we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with sinful desires. And so what we're supposed to do is bring our desires before God. And it's also not enough just to pray. And I know that might sound unspiritual because some people might say, but I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and God hasn't taken away the desire. Well, there's more in God's arsenal available to us than just prayer. There is prayer. There's doing what we're doing right now and studying the word of God and hiding it in our hearts. That's what I do when I um, feel like saying something harsh to my wife that I shouldn't. And, and, And I remember what the word of God says. That a harsh word stirs up anger, but a gentle word allays wrath. And that I am commanded to live with my wife in an understanding way and to treat her as an heir together of the grace of life, etc., etc. And so we, we bring our desires to the word of God. Yes, we pray, but maybe... We pray and fast. Maybe we find help within the body of Christ. Maybe every single opportunity for Christian fellowship, I take advantage of that. It's all of the ammunition that God has provided that he's provided for our sanctification. But don't use God made me this way as an excuse because it will not work out for you before God. Five, God wants me to be happy. And of course, the rest of this is, and I'm happy when I'm practicing same-sex attraction. The short answer is, actually, God wants you to be holy. Then, he wants you to be happy. He wants us to be holy and therefore happy. We read from Psalm 1. There's a lot of passages we can read about or refer to. First two verses in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, like that counsel that says homosexuality is okay, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his desire, his fulfillment is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And John, ha- John Piper famously has said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if we live in a way 
that is diametrically opposed to what the word of God says is pleasing to God, then we are not satisfied in him. God wants us to be holy and therefore happy. And then finally, telling LGBTQ people to repent is hate speech. Well, all I can say is the Apostle Paul said that when he went around preaching the gospel and calling all manner of sinners to repent, he said, for the love of Christ controls us. 2 Corinthians 5.14. And he also said that Christians uh, in our buying up the time, redeeming the time, we should be speaking the truth in love. And as Christians, we should be challenged by, by this. Uh, what is it, Westboro Baptist Church? Are they still around? Um, that's that church. I think they're in Kansas, and uh, they're infamous for going to, to gay funerals, I think, and holding up signs with pretty bad uh, script, uh, condemning scripture verses, etc., th things like that. Well, in terms of the letter of the law, they're, they're right, but it sure doesn't look to me like the love of Christ is controlling them or that they're speaking the truth in love. But, but frankly, while we as Christians fall short and we blow it, and we do come across as judgmental and condemning and self-righteous. Sure. I also believe that there's no possible way we can say things as, as nicely as we can possibly say things and not offend the LGBTQ community. Because this community, and if, that's, if you're a part of it, your community... You are promoting, you are celebrating, you're growing a practice and lifestyle that the Bible condemns. But that's not the end of the story. This is what repentance is all about. Repentance is not telling you to stop sinning. Stop it! no matter what your sin is. Repentance definitely involves turning from sin, from idols, to serve the living and true God. But it's turning from sin to Christ. It's experiencing the change of mind that the Holy Spirit produces concerning Jesus Christ. And there's good news in that. Because when the Bible says that God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent, it means, it implies that when we do repent of whatever our sin is and we turn to Christ, that Christ will receive us. Jesus himself said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means turn away. 
It has never happened in the whole history of the universe, and it will never happen in the whole history of the universe that any sinner who repented and came to Christ confessing their sin, trusting in Jesus, was ever, ever turned away by Jesus. Jesus receives all sinners, no matter who they are, where they're from, what their genetics are comprised of, what their sinful backgrounds are all about. Jesus receives every single one of them who comes to them in repentance and faith. He received Saul of Tarsus, who tried to destroy the church. And he received all of us who are believers this morning. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's the most loving thing we can say. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of grace and the God of holiness. We marvel, we marvel at the gospel, which is your plan, your message, your idea, which magnifies your grace without compromising your holiness. We thank you that you are just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you equip us, Lord? Would you enable us as Christ's followers to represent him faithfully in our wicked and perverse generation? Would you help us to speak the truth in love and to be controlled by the love of Christ? But Lord, Lord, help us to not shut our mouths like the world wants and save sinners here and around the world. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.